All right. You can uh, go ahead and open up to Romans 8 if you want to. Romans 8, 31 through 39 is where we're going to be. In uh, 2005, so 15 years ago, just a few blocks over, there was a uh, NCAA record set at Oklahoma State University, uh, but it was not set by any of the athletes at the university. An athletics record not set by any athletes at this university. Can you guess what that record is? Can you figure out what it was? Get to it in just a bit. For now, let me, uh, let me just update you real quick. Last week, we kind of took a little bit of a summary of the book of Romans um, and walked through how Paul is defending God's righteousness and justice, his integrity of who he is and his ability to give righteousness um, all the way through the book. That in the first, uh, first few chapters, we saw that God is righteous in judging a sinful world. And then in the next chapter and a half, three and four, we saw how God is righteous in saving people through Jesus and justifying people, declaring them righteous through Jesus. And then we said that Romans 5 through 8, which is the section we're wrapping up tonight, is, is showing God's righteousness in giving us a new life. His righteousness displayed in the new uh, life of His people. Uh, so, so just kind of a quick overview. In the first few verses of chapter uh, 5, you have Paul talking about God's great love that is proved or demonstrated for us in Christ's death on the cross. That He died for us while we were still sinners, Paul says. That's how he demonstrates His love for us. And then a little bit later, he talks about this idea that sin came through Adam, but grace and life came through Jesus. And the amazing news is that no matter how big sin gets, um, it never is able to keep up with God's grace. That where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Then in Romans 6, Paul talks about this idea that we who have Christ, who have been buried with Him in baptism, and then raised up, have been given new life, that we are free of our sins. Not just the power of our sins, but the, or sorry, not just the penalty of our sins, but the power of our sins. We're no longer under their control. And in Romans 7, he says that part of this new life is we have freedom from the law and the old way of life that God's people lived under for forever. And then in chapter 8, we've been talking about this idea that we've been given assurance of salvation through the Holy Spirit specifically, and then also through Christ. But the Spirit has been highlighted a lot in this. Um, the section that we're in tonight, these last nine verses of Romans 8, doesn't actually add a whole lot of new content or information. It's not stuff that Paul hasn't said before. Instead, it's really this kind of culmination or this climax of all that Paul has just written in the last few chapters. Um, one commentator says this, that what we're about to read is essentially a celebration of God's eternal commitment to His people. That's what this text is designed to be, a celebration. And Paul gives us these six rhetorical questions that he'll build this whole little celebration around. These six questions that he throws out that he wants you to be able to kind of join in and answer those questions in your mind to begin processing them. So, so let's go there, Romans 8. And let's start reading through, starting in verse 31. <coughs> Fighting off a bit of a cough. So, we'll see how this goes. Um, what then are we to say about these things? I'm reading, again, I, I'm, I'm in the Christian Standard Bible, CSB tonight. We'll probably be in ESV for the rest of the semester. This is just what I've been studying in recently. So, um, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, 
who is against us. He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? <coughs> so very first question, there's actually the three of the six are in that little section that we just read. And the first one is this, what then are we to say about these things? What, what is the these things that Paul is referring to? When he says these things, what is he talking about? It's actually somewhat kind of debated. Some people think he's specifically talking about verses 28 and 20, or 28 through 30 that, that we finished with last week. Um, that God works all things for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. And that God is committed to working them all the way through from being uh, known and predestined and called and justified into glorified. Um, and so what do we say about these things, those things you just mentioned? Uh, some people actually think that he's talking about all of chapter 8 um, and, and referencing all of that. Some people think he's actually talking about every bit of Romans so far. Chapters 1 through 8, what do we say about this, that this is kind of a big uh, kind of hinge point in the book? I think more than likely he's actually talking probably about the last three chapters as this is kind of one section, um, and, and he talks about this new life. So what are we to say about this new life, this kind of love, this kind of grace, this kind of freedom, this kind of assurance and confidence that we have been given in Jesus? Um, that's the question that he's kind of asking there. What should we say about those things? And, and then he gives this what I think is probably a really great summary of all five through eight, these words, God is for us. That's Romans 5 through 8, summed up right there. God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Like, like verse 28 last week, we had to kind of go back and, and, and explain a little bit of what verse 28 doesn't mean so that we can make sure we understand what it does mean. It's worth kind of understanding what, what Paul means when he says God is for us. That's actually fairly, I don't know if you've noticed, that's a, that's a fairly uh, popular line in worship songs recently. Um, you are for me, not against me. That kind of idea in there um, gets saying a lot. I love it. I love that idea. Um, but I think it can be missung because it can be misunderstood whenever we say those things. When Paul says that God is for you, it does not necessarily mean that he is for your plans. That he is for what you want. That he is going to uh, make things work out smoothly in the way you want. Because you know he's for you. He's for what you have in mind. He's for your version of success. No, no. It means he's for you. It means he's for, as we said, your good. For your growth. He's for drawing you near to himself. He is for your ultimate glory. That is what you can know, that God is at work and throwing all His weight and His power behind, making you who you were supposed to be. Saving you, redeeming you, sanctifying you, glorifying you. He's at work to do those things. How do we know, though, that He's committed to that? The answer comes in verse 32. He did not even spare His own Son, but offered Him up for us all. So how will He not also with Him grant us everything? Um, so uh, this, this verse actually reminds me a little bit of Romans 5.8. That God demonstrates His love for us in this. That while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. You want to know whether or not God is committed to you. You want to know whether or not He loves you. He says He, he didn't even spare His own Son for you, but offered Him up for us all. It's, it's an argument. So, like the Jewish rabbis back in this day loved to argue from lesser to greater. Um, 
So if this small thing is true, then you can know that this also, this bigger thing can be true. Jesus would actually do this sometime. Um, if, uh, if you, as wicked, sinful parents, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in Heaven give really good gifts to His children? So he argues from lesser to greater. Paul here is actually arguing opposite, from greater to lesser. Um, if he was willing to give up his own son for you, what, what other expense do you think he might like balk at? What thing do you think would, would cause him to kind of stop and, 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 and stop short of being committed to you? He is willing to give all things that are necessary to see you through. So the record, 2005, set at Oklahoma State University uh, in athletics, as I said, had nothing to do with an athlete, which might not surprise you that much. Um, in 2005, Boone Pickens set the record for the single largest gift in NCAA history when he gave $165 million to the OSU Athletic Department um, for specifically for the building of Boone Pickens Stadium over there. Um, the single largest check ever given in that section. Um, and I knew that he had given a lot. I did not know that actually like... He, he gave a ton to the athletic program, but, but actually most of his money went to like just school. Over the course of his life, Boone Pickens gave uh, about a billion dollars to OSU, which is just mind-blowing. I can't even get my mind around that. Um, but let's just say for a second, uh, Boone in 2005 drops the $165 million for Holder and company to go build the stadium over there, and they get it, and they get it all built up, and everything's put together, and, and Holder's excited, and he's walking through it, and then he goes in, and he realizes, walks into the film room, realizes, dude, we totally forgot to get a projector uh, for the film room, for them to watch film in here. Um, question for you. How, how worried do you think Mike Holder is to go to Boone Pickens and say, hey, um, sir, would you mind maybe giving us 800 bucks for a projector? You think Holder's sweating that to go to Boone Pickens and ask for the, man, I really, really hope he can swing this. I hope he can swing the 800. Um, no. That's, that's ridiculous. The man has given $165 million. You have no reason to doubt that he has the ability and the desire to come through on a projector for you. Okay? What Paul is getting at is that God himself has given the most valuable commodity in the history of the universe and given his own son for you. So what makes you think that that sin you committed last week is where he's going to stop short on you? That that in and of itself is going to make him kind of give up on this and be like, you know, I'm done. What makes you think that your foolish decisions, the things that you've done that you regret, what makes you think as you look around and, and you deal with your own anxiety or, or difficulties in your family or depression or loneliness, what, what would cause you to think in any way that he's left you or abandoned you in that? That I mean, I'll go as far as giving up my son, but I mean, hanging with you through hard times, that's too much to ask. No, Paul says, you can know if he has given up his own son that there is nothing he will not grant you in order to bring you through to fullness, to perfection, to completion. Verse 33 says this, Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. So these are the next two questions. 
The first is this, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? That word elect, it just means chosen people, His people. Um, You and I, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, who can bring an accusation against us? Um, And then he says here, verse 34, this might be the shortest, like fastest summary of Christ's ministry, of Jesus' ministry, like in all the Bible. It says there in uh, verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. So, (coughs) at the beginning of the year, uh, we talked about this idea that you never outgrow the gospel. The gospel is not just something you need when you become a Christian. It's not just something you need if you're lost to be able to find Jesus. It's something that we need throughout our life, that all of our life and all of our growth and all of our maturity centers around these truths. Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, Christ reigning as rightful king. All that you are, everything that you have, everything that you need in life is summed up in this Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, Christ reigning as rightful king. We call this gospel-centered life that we let Jesus' work and his identity shape every area of our lives. Um, this is actually a very similar thought here, but the emphasis on that last part, when we talk about Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father, the emphasis on this last part is not so much on his kingly rule, but here Paul is, um, is emphasizing his intercession for us. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but last week Paul said that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. So actually we have two intercessors in the Trinity. To that intercede on our behalf. But the Holy Spirit, His intercession is one that is praying for our needs, going to God, going to the Father, and praying on our behalf. Um, this kind of intercession is a different kind. This is a high priestly um, intercession. This is the kind of intercession that back in the Old Testament, when the people were sinful but they needed to be in the presence of God, that was their only hope. That was what made them the people of God, but their sins kept them from that. The high priest was the go between between God and man, the one who would go and offer sacrifices and make things right. Uh, and, and what he's getting at here is that this is what Jesus does for us. Let me read to you from Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. <coughs> um, says this, uh, sorry, I'm in five there. Four, 14 through 16 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Listen to this. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our need. says this, that because of Jesus' work in interceding for us uh, at the right hand of the Father, we have the ability, not only in our sin and in our guilt, but when we are facing temptation, to go before Him with boldness, and we will find grace and mercy in our need. Um, Last question comes in verses 35 through 37 here. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So this last question is the most explicit. A lot of the questions that Paul has asked at this point are these questions... (coughs) 
that have to do with our standing before God, what He's done for us, um, this kind of legal transaction. Jesus has made us righteous. Jesus has declared us to be good in God's sight. But this one makes explicit that this is more than just a bargain you made with God. The reason you can rest secure is not just because, hey, He's true to His word and He's got integrity. That would be enough, by the way. But, but what Paul says here, what he stresses here is not just this, but he, he really, really loves you. He loves us. And, and so for that reason, we can, we can have confidence. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes out these list of possible things that might cause a person to wonder. Now, this list is not exhaustive. He's just kind of throwing out all kinds of things that might be there. Should affliction or distress or persecution or uh, famine or nakedness or danger or sword, all of these things that a person might go through, like a... Uh, like a young father burying his wife and his unborn child tonight. And the kids that sit there in that room. Like brothers and sisters of ours that sit on the other side of the room whose family members are imprisoned tonight because of their love for Jesus. Like those who, who don't know if, if they or their loved ones will survive through this next month because of persecution that comes around and those who don't have food because they can't get jobs as Christians in their village, those kinds of things. And Paul says in those moments when you might be tempted to wonder, does God really care about us? Will you really let me bury my wife? Well, I've got these three young children. But I really have to wrestle with whether I'm going to have food to feed my kids because I'm committed to Him. Paul says, you can know that these things are not enough to separate you. Um, he says here, he, he, he has this quote from Psalm 40, 22. That's this verse. Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. That's a psalm that is about God's people who are suffering. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, when God's people were being attacked by their enemies, it was because they had turned on God. But Psalm 44 is about a specific instance when they hadn't. When they had tried to be faithful to God. When they were wanting to do the right thing, at least as far as they could tell. And, and here they were being defeated by their enemies, by being attacked. And, and the psalmist is crying out, how is this happening? God, we're being slaughtered here. We're like sheep to be slaughtered. How, how are you allowing this to happen? And, and Paul quotes this and says, you may feel like this sometimes. This may be what your life experience seems to be at times, but he says, know this, that even in this you are more than conquerors. The word there is, is actually a word that is found nowhere else in the New Testament. It's this kind of compound word, huper uh, nikao, okay? Nikao, from where we get the Greek word, the Greek uh, goddess of victory, Nike, all right? And hooper, hyper, like super. Um, so it's this word that kind of comes together to go like beyond victorious. Overwhelmingly, we are, even in the midst of the craziest of afflictions, even in the hardest part of our, your life, if you have Christ, you are overwhelmingly victorious. You are, literally, the word is like super winning, okay? You are super winning because of Christ. But it's not because of us. It says this, we are uh, more than conquerors through Him who loved us, through Jesus. And that leads to Paul's final rant. He's done with the questions. Now he's just going to kind of like um, unload with all of this kind of thought, this uh, almost uh, worshipful kind of idea that comes out. 
uh, starting in verse 38 there, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, this list that Paul uses here is not necessarily exhaustive, um, but it's meant to cover all these different areas of, of existence, basically. So he, he says neither death nor life, neither angels nor uh, rulers, probably mean like rulers of the spiritual realm, uh, maybe demonic forces, those kinds of things. Um, neither uh, things present nor things to come. So what he's getting at here is that nothing in our lives, nothing in the spiritual realm, nothing within the realm of time, nothing within the realm of space, no powers that exist at all. And then to make sure he covers it all, he says, listen, just let me just sum it up with this. Nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, at its most basic level, everything that exists falls into one of two categories, created and uncreated. And there's actually only one person, actually three in one person, that fits in that first category of uncreated. Um... God himself, the triune God, is the only thing uncreated. Everything else that exists or has ever existed exists because God spoke it into existence. Because God allowed it to exist, whether that be physical or spiritual. Whether that be uh, history or whether that be spatially or whatever you want to call it. Everything else. And so everything else fits in this category of created, which means everything else fits in this category of cannot separate cannot do anything to separate you from the love of Christ. So at the risk of <coughs> uh, getting overly academic, because I, I really do believe this is meant to be kind of a celebration, and I don't want to spend so much time dissecting and debating different things that it kind of loses some of that. Um, but... Um, I'll, just, I'll just kind of break down one of the questions that comes up about this passage. And that is, uh, when Paul says anything, that anything else in creation, does he fully mean anything? Specifically, um, is it possible for us to separate ourselves from Christ's love? Is it possible, more specifically, is it possible for us to lose or separate ourselves from the salvation that God has offered to us once that has been given to us. Um, and even now as I'm into it, I'm like, man, I wish I, maybe I shouldn't even be talking about this right now. But I'll just, I'll just kind of break this down for you. There are basically three, uh, three different views on this, this idea of what we call eternal security or the perseverance of the saints. Um, and, and so last week I gave you three different views on verse 29 of predestination. Just so you know, these three do not correspond perfectly. So it's not like view number one from verse 29 matches up per- perfectly with views here. Um, but there are three basic ideas, and, and just to kind of put them simply, the first one goes like this. You did not choose God, so you cannot unchoose Him. Um, we talked that there, there are some who believe, this is called like unconditional perseverance of the saints. There are some people who believe that God chose beforehand those, those who are going to be saved, those who are going to belong to Him. Um, and because God chose those who are going to be saved, if God chose you to be saved, then that means you don't have any way to unchoose Him. Like He chose that you're going to be saved, it's going to happen, all right? Um, there's no walking away from that. Um, and if a person does say, uh, 
get baptized and say that they're giving their life to Jesus and then they walk away later in life, what these people would say is that's, that's simply evidence that they never really belonged to God in the first place, that they never gave their life to Jesus. Because the truth is, they would say, you cannot choose God, He chooses you, which means you cannot unchoose God. All right? Uh, the second view, what we might call conditional perseverance, says this, that you can freely choose God and therefore you can unchoose Him. Um, so when the idea is that, yes, Paul says that nothing can separate us. He doesn't mean, he means that nothing against you, nothing can come and against your will pull you away from God. But the idea is that because you have been given free will to choose him, you, you can choose to place your faith in him. You can choose to give your life to him. You can choose to give your heart to him that you can actually choose to take that back as well. And then you can choose to... <coughs> Walk away from that if you choose to. You can, that God may never stop loving us, but we can choose to walk away from that love and not experience the saving effects of that love. And then the third option um, is what's known as free grace doctrine, um, more commonly known as once saved, always saved. And that is that you, fr- you can freely choose God, but you cannot unchoose Him. That once you have said the prayer and asked Him into your heart, um, that once you have been baptized, that once you, whatever it is, that no matter what happens from there, it doesn't matter. You can kind of live however you want. You can kind of, uh, you can even renounce the faith. It doesn't matter. You, you said the prayer, you got saved, you're, you're saved. You're in all the way. Um, now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time breaking these down. I'll just kind of be straight to the point. I land most specifically in the second one. Uh, I believe that uh, we have free will. I believe that we have the freedom to choose, and therefore I do believe we have the ability to also walk away. I believe that because there are multiple warnings in Scripture against walking away. Um, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, as a matter of fact, I believe much of what Hebrews is, is a warning against those who are considering going back on their faith and going back to their Jewish roots. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, <coughs> I believe the parable of the sower speaks about this a little bit. So there are a number of places like this. But I'll also say I have uh, a profound respect for the first few. Um, like I, I said this last week, most of my favorite authors and teachers and preachers believe that God predestines who he's going to save, chooses who he's going to save. And those people also believe that means since you can't choose God, you can't unchoose him. Um, I, I have respect. I think that they are at least logically consistent and that they are biblically consistent in their view. The one view that I cannot find myself um, getting behind is this third one, once saved, always saved, that, that a person can give their life to Jesus um, and then just choose to do whatever they want, that they can walk away, they can reject Him, they can live however they want to. Nowhere in the Scriptures does Jesus offer um, that you can uh, believe in me without following me. Those two things go hand. That, those two things go together, um, and 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 I believe that if you can choose him, that you can choose to step away. Nowhere do we see this idea that hey, you can you can live however you want to. You just say the prayer. That's your life insurance policy, and then you're kind of set. Go go do what you want. Jesus never says that. Paul never says that. I just cannot um, begin to see that in there. Now, here's what I, I want to just be able to kind of explain to you real quick, and that is, um, I don't believe the way I always say it. Uh, you don't lose your salvation like you lose your keys, all right? Um, I just put this uh, 
tile in my uh, in my wallet a couple weeks ago um, because I this wallet is like super thin and I tend to lose it all the time and so I finally put this thing in here so that I would be able to track it whenever I inevitably leave it somewhere uh, in the church building or up here or or at my house or whatever, um, because sometimes I don't keep up with it, all right? And I'm, I'm absent-minded, okay? That's not how anybody ever loses their salvation, all right? They don't look up one day and go, man, where, where'd my salvation go, right? I can't seem to remember where I put that, right? That's not the idea that I'm talking about. I, I, I believe that what we're talking about is a conscientious rejection of Christ and what he calls and, and, and who he is as King and Lord and Savior and to step away from that, right? I also do not believe in an up and down that like some days if you do enough stuff that you're saved and good and if you kind of turn from him a little bit on Tuesday then you might go to hell if you die on Tuesday and so hopefully you'll get it back together on Wednesday I don't believe that that's not biblical no 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 God's grace covers your sin past present and future and it is not about what you do that gets you in in or out let's let's not be confused about that Um, I do not believe that Um, I believe that God gives you grace and that when you trust Him, that He um, clings to you, that He holds to you. And not only that, but that you have very small odds of walking away from Him because you have God Himself at work to see you through. And and He does not go back on His plans. And so I believe that uh, you have reason for confidence. You have reason for security. You have reason to trust because of what God does. His grace and His love are huge. They are for you and they are holding you fast. And we can rest in that. So I want to take a break here. And then we'll get back together in just a few minutes. And I want to walk back through a few of Paul's questions because we didn't break down specifically what the possible answers might be to some of his questions. And so in a couple minutes, we'll come back and we'll do that. But first, you can get up, stretch your legs, or if you need to use the restroom, it's right back through there. All right. So let's, uh, let's unpack the rest of this real quick, walking through some of these questions. Um, Like last week, we'll actually spend a little less time on this back half, just kind of touching on a couple things. As I said, this this text is actually driven around these six rhetorical questions that Paul uses in here as as kind of a device for drawing people in. That's what rhetorical questions are supposed to do in a speech. They're designed to kind of pull you in, and instead of just telling you information, they're designed to get you to kind of ponder yourself and think through what what are the possibilities? What could separate? What could those kind of ideas? Um, uh, rhetorical questions, though, always lose a little bit of effect, though. I don't know if you've ever been a part of this. When someone thinks that they're supposed to answer them out loud, right? Um, so like last week, I talked about waiting, you know, and, and I could have started off and said something like, you know, do you know what it's like to wait? Just to kind of get you to kind of feel that and experience, oh yeah, I can think of it. But if somebody from the back goes, yeah, my birthday is in seven days and I've been waiting and I can't wait for it to happen. It kind of ruins the whole thing, right? Uh, we actually had, I was actually thinking about this today as I was uh, going through this. We had a girl, her name is Chelsea. Sorry, Chelsea, if you listen to this. Uh, we had a girl who used to be a part of our ministry who would do that. Like, you would try to make like a rhetorical, like, you'd, like a little point with some rhetorical question, and she would just answer them from the back. And everybody's like, what is going on? Um, it's why I hate speaking to junior hires, right? Because um, there's always the kid with like no social awareness who's like uh, playing with figurines. So it's like he's not even listening to anything I say except for he always magically hears the rhetorical question and answers it out loud, right? 
Um, uh, whenever, whenever somebody jumps in and tries to answer, it tends to kind of lose the impact of what those things are supposed to be. Um, but Paul here is asking these questions, and the implied answer to, to most of these questions is no one. Who can separate us? Who can uh, condemn? Who can accuse us? The implied answer that he wants you to process through and go, no one. That's what he wants you to think. But at the risk of ruining the effect of Paul's rhetorical questions, we're going to answer a few of those out loud. Um, and so the first one is in verse 31, this, uh, this question, if God is for us, who is against us? Now that is a pretty um, interesting question, maybe kind of even funny, coming from the uh, Apostle Paul. Because here's what Paul wrote in another letter just a couple years before Romans. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 24, he says this, Five times I received the forty lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and without clothing, not to mention the other things, there is the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with uh, indignation? And so in answer to the question, who is against us, the answer to Paul is everyone, dude. Everyone is against you, Paul. Nobody likes you. Wherever you go, you're in danger from your countrymen. You're in danger from the Gentiles. You're in danger from robbers. You're... So the, the answer when Paul asks this question, at least for himself, the implied answer is supposed to be no one. But the truth is, for Paul, and actually for all the Christians he's writing to, and also for many of us, the answer is yes, there are people who are against us. And that's where we got to make sure that we're clear on what Paul's actually getting at. What Paul is saying when he says, who is against us, when it's propped up first with this other line, if God is for us, who is against us? What he means is not that there is nothing against me, but that nothing can stand a chance. That's what he's getting at. Yes, Paul says, everything's against me. Everyone's against me. Everyone wants to kill me everywhere I go. And yet... Nothing can stand a chance if God is for me. That if He is there, then there's nothing else that has the power to face off against Him. Second question is this, who can bring an accusation against us, against God's elect? And again, if you know your Bible, then you know that the answer is actually there's a lot of people. First and foremost, Satan himself is, is called in Revelation 12.10, the accuser of the brothers. That's, that's what he does. That is his job. Who can accuse us? Who can bring an accusation against us? Satan can and does. Over and over and over again, seeks to pull you into his trap of temptation and then seeks to just wreak havoc on your life with shame and accusation against you over and over again. Other people can bring accusations against you. I thought you were a Christian. Can't believe you live like that. Can't believe you do those kinds of things. Can call into question uh, your character or your commitment to Christ. And maybe as much as anything, this one's probably tied to Satan, but um, our own consciences, our own hearts, 
Our own minds often bring accusations and condemnation against us. You know that little uh, voice inside you hear from time to time after you screw up that just goes, seriously? Again with this crap? You're doing this stuff all over again. What's wrong with you? Or maybe you hear something like, this is just so like you. You always come back to the same wicked, sinful, foolish stuff over and over again. How can you even call yourself a Christian? How can you even think that God would still love you when you do that kind of stuff repeatedly? How do you even find the nerve to come to Him in prayer, to try and face Him, to go to church, to put a good face on and try to worship Him when you know the kind of person you are and the kind of things that you've done. There are all kinds of things that accuse us. And we know that. Paul's not saying here that you cannot be accused of anything. What Paul is saying is that if you are in Christ, that none of those accusations stick. Because God himself has declared you righteous. That's what he says. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? God has already, that word justified. Defazio, Michael Defazio talked about our retreat. It means declared righteous. He has declared you to be innocent in the court of law. He, he is the judge and he has declared you, vindicated you, set you up as innocent because Christ's righteousness is on you. And so, therefore, you are innocent, you are righteous. And so any accusation that is thrown against you, even if it has to do with your own sin, it does not stick because that sin is not yours anymore. That sin was put on Christ when he was on the cross and you took on his righteousness. 1 John 1, 8-9 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So if you try to pretend like you're not a mess, if you try to pretend like you don't have sin in your lives, you're, you're lying to yourselves and the truth is not in us. But, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love that word and I never caught it for a long time. God is not just faithful to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He is just. What does that mean? A just judge always declares innocent people innocent. Always declares guilty people guilty. What he's getting at is um, it is the only right thing to do if you are in Christ to declare you to be innocent and righteous. It's the only right and just thing to do because you have the righteousness of Christ on you. Colossians 1.14 says that Christ, has, Jesus has taken the debt of all our sin and he has nailed it to the cross so it no longer exists. Who can bring an accusation against us? Lots of people, but none of those accusations will last. None of those accusations stick against those who have the righteousness of Christ on them. Third one comes in verse 35. Who can separate us? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Now the answer to this one is not too tricky. It's actually pretty clear. The answer here is no one. And it really is no one. The issue here is making sure that we understand this 
in the way that Paul means it when he says no one or nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Let me read to you again verses 35 through 37. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, what the CSB does here in verse 37, it comes off of the quote from the Psalms. Uh, because of you, we are putting put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. And then the very first word in, in 37 <coughs> is this word, no. Okay, that's actually, they're not the only ones. Almost all of them translate it that way. ESV does, uh, NIV does, trans, starts off verse 37 with that idea of no. But that's not actually the word that's in there. The word, the Greek word is Allah, which is almost always translated but or yet. It's a conjunction. But, and I think the reason that that matters is because a person could read this, this statement from Psalm. We are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. And then you read no, as in that's not going to happen to us. No, that's not my life. That's not my truth. I'm not going to have to go through suffering. I'm not going to have to experience that stuff because I am more than a conqueror. That's not what Paul says. He says, but, and what he means is that, yeah, you very well may go through affliction and distress. You very well may go through persecution. You very may, well may be counted as sheep to be slaughtered, but even in those things, you are more than conquerors. Even in the midst of that, you are more than conquerors through him who loves you. God takes those very things that are meant to be weapons worked against you, and He uses them for your good, like we were promised in Romans 8, 28. Here is kind of the bottom line. The key is that we may go through in this life, actually, we will go through hardship and distress. We will go through doubts and failures, through bouts of loneliness or depression or anxiety. We will go through painful relationships that are broken off with people who are very close to us because maybe of our faith, because of things that we are going through. And if we use those circumstances, my current situation and how things are going for me, my own feelings about whether I can feel God's presence in this moment, whether it feels like He's close to me or not, or my own ability to obey Him, if I use those things, Things as my gauge for how much God loves me, I will always find myself going up and down. Because on the days that I'm doing well and life is going well, it's easy to feel like God loves me. But in those moments when life sucks, in those moments when I keep stumbling and failing over and over and over again, if I'm using that as the gauge in my life, it's no wonder I won't feel like God loves me. It's no wonder I won't be able to feel like he's near to me or close to me. And that will always cause problems for you because that, your personal circumstances and your present situations are not the gauge for God's love. The gauge is always Jesus and his actions on your behalf. What does Paul say? He did not spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. That is the gauge. You want to know whether or not God loves you. You want to know whether or not in your deepest, darkest moments God is committed to you. Know this, He did not even spare His own Son, but offered Him up for you. 
Christ was crucified for our sin. Christ was resurrected to give us life. Christ intercedes for us on the right hand of God. That is the gauge. You want to know whether He loves you. Know those things that Christ died for you, that He raised to give you life, that He intercedes for you at this very second. And it's not based on how your life is going. It's not based on whether you're living the kind of holy life you're supposed to all the time without any failure. It's not based on whether or not you're burying your young wife and your unborn child in this moment. It's not based on how things are going in your family or whether you're experiencing anxiety or whether you feel some kind of depression you can't come out of or some kind of loneliness. That's not how you know whether or not He loves you. You know because Christ died for you, Christ raised to bring you life, Christ intercedes on your behalf at this very moment. He did not even hold back His own Son from you, but offered Him up for us all. John Stott commentator I really love, he says this, Our confidence is not in our love for him, which is frail and fickle and faltering, but in his love for us, which is steadfast and faithful and persevering. And I think you could substitute that first line and say our confidence is not in our feelings of being close to him, which is frail and fickle and faltering, but it is in his love for us, which is steadfast which holds to us in all of those times. You could even substitute and say, in our confidence is not in our ability to obey, but in His love for us. Our confidence is not in our circumstances, but in His love for us, which is steadfast, faithful, and persevering. There is a time in our lives for self-evaluation and self-examination. There's a time when it is good to look at your life. Paul says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith, to, to see if I am living in accordance with the Scriptures. That's good to know. But I love this reminder from this old Scottish minister by the name of Robert McShane. He says this, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. Because that's where the gauge is. The gauge is in here. It's good for me to know if I'm living in obedience. It's not good for me to know if He loves me or not. For every look at my own life, I take ten looks at him because that's where the gauge is. I'm going to have the band come up here. <clears throat> They're going to uh, lead us in a time of just worship and celebration over God's love for us. Um, and, and we've been, at the beginning of each of Romans 8, we've been quoting the chapter to you. We've been quoting the section to you. Tonight I wanted to wait until the end and get to just kind of speak these words over you. Uh, before, before I do that, I want to give you just a minute to think through. If, if you try to consider how much God loves you, what is the gauge you tend to use for that? Is it how well you're obeying Him this week? <laughs> <laughs> is it whether your closing point was completely ruined by a bass amplifier that goes off in the middle of your message? <laughs> is, it, is it how well you're obeying Him this week? Or is it uh, how well your life is going, whether your plans are falling into place? Is it whether you feel close to Him or not? Like when you sing, if you can kind of feel that tingly feeling in you, is that how you know how much God loves you? Um, what is the gauge that you tend to use? And I want you to take a minute to hand that gauge over to God because that's not accurate, because it's worthless for determining His love for you. And instead, I want you to be able to use this. Christ died, Christ resurrected, Christ intercedes for you. 
That is your gauge for knowing how much he loves you. So take a moment to think on that, and then we'll read these words and listen to them together. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, so who is the one who condemns? Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we are more than conquerors. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's sing about that for a little bit.